Well, everyone, my name is Will. I'm one of the, the pastors here at New Life Press, and uh, as we just prayed, we're continuing along in a series in the book of Nehemiah, and today we'll consider the passage, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 to 20. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Nehemiah 2, or go ahead and look up on the screen. Let me read God's word for us here today. Nehemiah chapter 2, starting with verse 9, and I'll read to verse 20. This is God's word. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one that what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There is no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and his gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there is no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone, what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies by in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And this is God's word for us today. Well, we're looking at this fascinating character, Nehemiah, and as we enter to the latter half of chapter 2, we're going to consider Nehemiah, and I've said this in the first two messages, that one of the realities of Nehemiah is that it gives us a glimpse of leadership, of the challenges of mobilizing people for a vision, of how to deal with naysayers and opposition, of having a vision that you feel is God-given, and how do you execute and implement that vision. And in chapter 2, verses 9 to 20, we see the vision that Nehemiah has, but we begin to see him as a leader, begin to implement and to examine and to persuade and to vision cast this vision that God has placed upon his life so that he could rebuild the walls of the temple. And so the message today is essentially lessons on leadership. And before you tune out and think to yourself that I'm not a leader, in some ways you're going to have to lead something. You may not be a leader of a nation or a country, but in some ways you can learn what it means to lead your life. And I think we could glimpse and get a sense of what leadership lessons could be for us here today in your own individual life. And when we look at Nehemiah, there are lessons peppered throughout this passage, but we'll just consider three. Three lessons on leadership, three lessons as we look at Nehemiah's strategy in rebuilding the temple walls. Three things that we see that he does as a leader, and this is what he does. First, Nehemiah prioritizes rest. He rests. Secondly, he examines. 
And then thirdly, he motivates. So that's what Nehemiah does as a gospel-centered, kingdom-oriented leader. He rests. Secondly, he examines. And then thirdly, he motivates himself, but also the people who are going to follow him. And so let's consider his rest. That's his first point. Now, you can imagine Nehemiah, he got permission from the king, if you know the story. He wants to rebuild the walls of his temple. And if you remember from last week, it's about 900 miles. They don't have trains or airplanes back then. So the commentators will note that he essentially traveled about 9 to 10 miles a day. And it's a 900-mile trip. It must have been really hard. And Nehemiah, you can imagine, he cried, he was emotional, he had a vision, he probably had a sense of urgency, and when he finally reaches the city in Jerusalem, what was the first thing that he does? He rests. It's almost a passing comment, he almost glossed over it. It's almost a detail in the passage that you overlook, so you don't want to place too much emphasis on this, but he does rest. Read with me in verse 11, That's, it's right there. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. And you could make this case that three days is suggestive of something that's complete. So when Jesus died on the cross and he descended into hell for three days, it meant that his work of redemption was final and complete. The number three is not just the Trinity, but it's a number that the Bible seems to like and suggests that three conveys a sense of totality and completeness. But he was there in Jerusalem for three days. He rested. And if you think it's just... Nehemiah, you can see this in other passages. Maybe you look at his close buddy Ezra, and in chapter 8, verse 15, we read, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. And then again in chapter 8, verse 32, Ezra says, We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. So three days seems to be the pattern that we see for leaders to find rest before they embark upon their vision and their mission and their values. Friends, I don't have to argue with you or try to persuade you the necessity and the benefits of rest. You can imagine that if you wake up tired and cranky that it diminishes your usefulness. You're not as mentally alert. It diminishes our ability to cope with the day-to-day frustrations and routines, doesn't it? If you're tired and you wake up without full day's rest, you get irritable, you get angry, you get impatient, you snap a little bit more. Now, certainly, I could resonate with this, and I do that as well. You know, I mentioned this back in 2019 in my first sabbatical that I struggled with sleep, and so I was on sleep medication. And actually, this past year during COVID, the sleep medication was actually a little bit worse. But for the past several weeks, it's been a little bit better weaning myself off of this. But I could see myself feeling more irritable, more, more irrational, angrier, not as patient. And so we see here, at least implicitly, that there are practical benefits towards rest, and that's what Nehemiah did for three days. So it tells us at least this, that we have to consider, when you think about a vision for your life and for church, how do you build into that vision a system of rest and relaxation into this framework of what God has given you to pursue his glory? Rest. In fact, one of the ways you know you need to take a break, and one of the ways I knew that I needed to take a break is because the decisions and your perception in life begins to be driven more by fatigue, more by frustration, and not by faith. So whenever you feel like in your own lives, in work, or in marriage, or in school, or in parenting, 
Whenever you begin to sense that you're making decisions because of fatigue and it's driving your decisions more than faith, it means that you need to press the brakes and you need to take a break because you have to rest. And that's exactly what I felt in my own personal life as well. A lot of decisions for years was driven out of fatigue, out of fear, out of frustration, not necessarily out of faith. Well, many of you have read this book called Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Warren, and she does a wonderful job in one chapter talking about the need for Sabbath rest. And this is what she says. She says this, and I quote, If rest is learned through habit and repetition, so is restlessness. These habits of rest or restlessness form us, and they shape us over time. And what she's trying to get at is this, that there is a deep connection between the sleep we get at night and the rest we get each Sunday in gathered worship. Both worship and sleep, they profess our loves. Sleep and worship, they profess our trust, and they convey our limitations as finite people. Your sleep and rest actually reflect a regular rhythm and flow, this ritual that expresses as an act of worship your dependence upon God. Because if you think about it, in our sleep, we are the most vulnerable. In our sleep, we are helpless. In our sleep, we are completely inactive, and it reflects our trust and dependence upon God because God is the one who never sleeps and is in perfect control of our lives in this world. In other words, friends, our sleep in profound and deep ways is an act of faith because it's a reminder that if we could sleep at night, God's grace is completely active while we are inactive. He's at work in the world and within us. He's a true mover and shaker. And our sleep is an act of faith that expresses that true reality of God. So in some ways, not to press it too harshly, if you have trouble sleeping, sure, it could be physiological, but at the end of the day, there's something in your heart that really expresses something that may not fully trust and rest in the gospel for you because your sleep is an act of faith to say, you are in control, God, and I am not in control of my life, and you are sovereign over all things. And that's what the psalmist declares in chapter 3, verse 5. The psalmist very succinctly says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me, his regular rhythm and flow of sleep. Well, let me try to press this a little bit more. Alistair Groves, in a podcast that I listened to, was talking about the necessity and the goodness of sleep. And he says, basically, as I summarize, I think one of the reasons that rest is so hard for us is that it's really easy to confuse rest with other things. We confuse rest with not doing stuff, or we confuse rest with self-indulgence. We confuse rest with frantic activity to make ourselves happier and feel better. And I think there's something profound here. He's saying you could work really hard at work, but you could work equally hard on your vacation. And that's why you come back not very restful because it's a frantic activity. You could vacation, you could party, you could have an activity of self-indulgence, but that takes just as much energy to engage in those self-indulgent activities as much as it is to go to the hospital, go to work, or go to the classroom. It's a lot of work to do both vacation and work, and both in some sense is really an activity. And so Alistair Gross says, what is rest, and how does rest actually become restful to my soul? Because you could work hard at vacation, you could work hard at work, and you never get any rest. That's why you feel burnt out. Well, he references this Jewish secular thinker, Judith Shelovitz, who's a columnist for the New York Times. And in an article that she wrote, Bring Back the Sabbath, remember, she's not a Christian. 
she's actually defending the idea that we need a Sabbath still today as modern contemporary people, and she's writing to a secular audience. And she has this interesting comment. God rested, and we rest in order to honor the divine in us, to remind ourselves that there is more to us than our work. And the machinery of self-censorship, you know, you hold back what you want to say, what you want to feel, must shut down too. still the eternal murmur of self-reproach. Now, what is she saying here? She's saying that rest is not first about your activity. Rest is something that's deeper. It's a second level of rest in your heart. This rest in the sense of being not just restful in your activity, but restful in who you are as a person. You see, what she says in this article is that most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do is stop working in order to get rest. But that's not really the case. That's why in the Bible, the inventors of the Sabbath in the Old Testament understood that rest is much more complicated than just stopping work. You can't just downshift casually and easily. And that's why in the Old Testament, the Jewish Sabbath had so many exacting details of what you're supposed to do because it's telling you how to pull the gears down and slow down slowly in your life. God rested and we rest in order to honor the divine in us, to still the eternal murmur of self-reproach. This is what she's saying, and I think this gets at the heart of why we're so restless in our lives. Yeah, you need physical rest, you need to sleep, you need to take a break from work, you need to go on vacation, but you can still feel so tired, and the reason is this, because at the end of the day, the reason you're tired and so restless is because in your heart of hearts, you're not resting in who you are in Jesus Christ. You're not content and happy with who you are as a person. You have to get in a little bit deeper. You know, Sholovitz is saying, it's one thing to physically rest to stop your labor. She was doing that in her secular and leisure activities, but she realized that there's still an elusive and a deeper inner rest to be at rest with who she was as a person. The deep rest that enables you to put down your work and walk away from it because it's completely at rest with who you are in your inner being, your self-worth, your identity, your purpose in life. And she's saying at the end of the day, the reason you're so restless at life in life and at work is because you're not at rest with who you are in your identity in the gospel of Jesus. Now, the author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, basically says this as he goes really deep. He says, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith in those who listened. For we have believed, enter that rest. And the author of Hebrews is basically saying to his second-generation Jewish converts, You want rest? Well, it's not just about stopping activity and having frantic activity and vacation. It's to believe in the gospel and say that in Jesus you can have that rest because you no longer have to build a sense of self. That in Christ you have a sense of worth. You have forgiveness of sins. You have an identity as righteousness. You're wholly accepted by a complete, perfect God who loves you and understands you and has forgiven you. And once you find your identity in the gospel and you believe in all the promises, then and only then can you really be at rest. And I think that's something for us to consider. Now, before we go on to our second point, when you look at the Ten Commandments, they're given to you so that you can have a peaceful and restful, holy life. But if you look at the Fourth Commandment, to honor the Sabbath and rest is basically implying this. Inasmuch as murder and lying and theft could brutalize your livelihood and your society, Lack of rest and a wrong understanding of resting the gospel 
can equally brutalize herself in understanding is not just going to be murder and lying and adultery and not honoring mom and dad that will mess up your life in the society. It's also going to be, and perhaps even more so, a lack of understanding of the necessity of rest. Because it's the fourth commandment. Unless you understand this act of faith in which you have a regular rhythm and flow of worship on Sundays and resting at night, then your life will begin to crumble and it will begin to implode. Overwork and lack of rest also brutalizes society and family in your personal life. So what's the first leadership lesson here today? Learn how to rest. Learn how to rest. If you're a workaholic, slow down and learn how to rest. And it also works the other way. Sometimes you could rest too much and you're just lazy. You don't do anything in life. But you got to have that balance to say at the end of the day, there's physical rest and there's vacation rest, but in the heart of it, you believe in the gospel so that you can get eternal rest, gospel-centered rest. Well, let's move on as we belabor that point about rest, and hopefully people can rest today. I wonder, actually, as we talk about rest, how many millions of thoughts are going in your head right now if that service could end and you have a whole schedule of things that you got to do, when in fact, the Bible is just saying, take it easy, and as an act of faith, find rest for your souls. But enough said about that, let's move on to our second point. Another lesson of Nehemiah in leadership is not that he prioritizes rest in verse 11, but he also does a thorough, full examination of his circumstances. He examines the situation. And we do well for ourselves if we could learn how to be patient and examine the situation of our lives. And these are just a couple of passing thoughts. One, lessons on leadership, he examines the broken walls of the temple, but he does this first secretly. He does it secretly. And if you take a moment, that's something that really runs up the grain of our culture and society because whenever leadership tries to do something secretly, it's always viewed in a negative light. What are they conniving? What are they manipulating? What are they politicking about? Because they're not being transparent. Well, it may not be the fact that leadership's not trying to be transparent. It's the fact that they don't know exactly what they're supposed to do, so they're just holding their mouth shut so that they can secretly examine the situation. Read with me verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone, Nehemiah speaking, or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, in other words, the religious elite, I didn't tell the officials, the political elite, and the rest who were to do the work, his very own people. So he does this examination of the temples secretly. Well, the simple kind of leadership point about secret examination. Now, there is a time for full vision casting and full transparency and full disclosure. But sometimes, if you give full disclosure and full vision casting prematurely, you actually have a bigger problem on your hands because people may not be able to understand or handle the full disclosure that you give because you're disclosing things too early without fully thinking it through. So that's why when you, for, when you have a big plan, you got to examine, but sometimes you have to do it in privacy and secrecy so you could have a full examination so that by the time you actually vision cast or share people where you feel like you want to go, you could do so by answering the questions and objections in such a way that you could persuade and help them to understand. And so instead of establishing a vision, sometimes we have big mouths and we share everything openly and we establish chaos. 
And so rather than mobilizing a people towards the God-given vision, we're so excited without doing a secret examination, and then we share these plans, and then eventually what you have on your hands is not a gospel-centered vision, you have a man-centered chaos. And then you spend all this time trying to repair the damage of chaos because you didn't actually begin the process of leadership in secret. You see, friends, I think Nehemiah was probably secretive, first of all, to ensure that when he finally stated his plan, he knew that it was actually a feasible plan, and to prevent his enemies, even the traitors, from jumping on his strategy and dethroning the plan. He did it in secret. But he also does his examination quietly, which is related to secrecy. Now look at the hallmarks of this examination. He did this quietly. Look at verse 12, a very subtle point. Then I rose in the night, so he went in the middle of the night, it's already quiet, no one could see him, and I a few men with me, so he had trusted people that he could have, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem, because remember, they don't have mail back then, they don't have email, it's not as if the people 900 miles away knew why Nehemiah was coming into the city. So Nehemiah, even in the beginning, didn't tell anybody. He even mentions there's no animal with me but the one on which I rode. That's kind of a weird comment, is it? Why would he just say, I have a donkey, and no other donkeys are around with me except the donkey that I'm about to ride? I think it's just a, a realistic historical point. He's saying if there are a lot of donkeys, they may rustle each other up, they may start making more noise. So he says, I'm going to go in the middle of the night, there's only going to be one animal that I use, and I'm going to begin to examine the broken walls of the city. He does this, in other words, quietly. You can even imagine the drama of this picture. One commentator says in the silhouette of the moonlight, looking at Nehemiah on his donkey with his trusted few friends, probably is one of the most glorious pictures of God moving forward his redemptive plan. Now you can imagine the quietness of Nehemiah's examination. He's slowly going on his donkey and he goes to the first gate over here. He gets off the donkey and he looks around at how the walls have fell down and onto the road gets back on his donkey, and he goes over to the second gate, and then he examines the second gate. And he goes over to a third section and realizes it's too low, so he can't ride his donkey, so he gets off his donkey, holds the reins of his donkey, and then brings over the animal through this lower crevice so that he can continue to examine. And commentators say he probably looked at about half of the city, had enough examination to formulate a feasible plan, and then he goes back in the cover of night. He didn't gossip about his plans. He didn't chatter about it unnecessarily. He didn't flippantly share about this. And if you think about this, that takes a lot of self-control. Because I don't know about you, but there's people here when they know something big is happening. I mean, it's hard to keep a secret, you know? Now just imagine, New Life Press, we're going to relocate to LA. I tell you, hey, we're going to relocate. Don't tell anybody. God has a vision for the city. I know that person is going to be dying to tell somebody. Hey, guess what? There's a big vision to reach unbelieving people. We're going to church plant. Again, we're going to try to do this. Don't tell anybody. I'm just asking you so you can pray about this. You're a trusted leader. That person, I guarantee, is going to have a real hard time of not chattering about this and revealing it. I think it's just human and it's understandable. Nehemiah had this world-class vision he could have used it selfishly to pedestal himself, but what did he do? He was very quiet about it because he knew it wasn't about him. 
It was about God. He didn't gossip. He didn't chatter unnecessarily. He chose the moment to show his hand, and he kept it from his enemies. He kept it from the leaders and the people until it was the right moment to reveal that he had a royal flush. Because half-warmed ideas and piecemeal theories will never inspire or persuade people. So he examines quietly, he examines secretly, and the last thing that he does is that he examines methodically. You see what possibly, what he was trying to do is to examine this temple and determine what in reality could be actually done. You know, they say that a vision is only as good as its implementation. So you could have a big plan, and there's a lot of great ideas that people have in church. And this is one of the things I'm always going to push back on, the wonderful ideas and the giftedness that people have. We have a big plan for church and a great program. The first thing I'm going to ask, and I think leadership should ask, how are you going to implement this? Where is the money going to come from? Who's going to run this? Where is the people going to come from? Because the vision is only as good as its implementation. So we're always going to ask out of stewardship and implied by Nehemiah, that he had a methodical examination to determine what was feasibly possible in reality. He examined about half the city, and it was enough for him to formulate his rebuilding strategy. So anything in your life, friends, I'm not saying this is the only cookie-cutter way to do it, but at least there's some wisdom here. Whenever you have something in your personal life that you have to make a decision about, a big decision that could change the trajectory of your life, maybe you want to do it quietly at first, maybe in secrecy, and maybe methodically, so that eventually you can see what God is calling you to do. But last but not least, what is the last lesson that we learn about leadership here? Well, we learn that Nehemiah is good at motivating. Look at with me verse 17. It says, I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Now, Nehemiah is talking to his people. You see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins and his gates burned. Come, let us build a wall to Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Which, as a side note, is interesting, especially in this day and age in which we're all about speaking against a shaming culture. It seems that Nehemiah implies in some way that he uses derision as a way to motivate people. But the difference here in the motivation is that he's not trying to shame the people and say, You guys are lazy. You guys are weak. How could you ever let this happen to the walls? He uses a subtle form of shaming, but it's really the shame that came to the honor of God because his house and the temple lies in ruins and his people are not doing anything about this. Well, how did he motivate the people? What does a good leader do? Well, it's exactly what we said here. He doesn't, when you look at Nehemiah, criticize and ridicule and put down the people and say, how can you be so ignorant? He actually identifies with them. That's why in verse 17, he doesn't say, look at the mess he made. He says, look at the trouble we are in. We're in this together. We're suffering here together. We have the same heart issues together. And I think he binds himself to his people to say, we are united together in this purpose and plan. Let's figure out a way to help each other and get out of it. And then in verse 18, he motivates him by the people by showing what motivates himself. Verse 18 says, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise and build. 
Now, these are just really genuine, implicit applications of vision casting and motivation. He says here, I told them of the hand of my God. So he's recounting history. He's saying, I had this vision. My heart was broken. I was praying day and night for five months. I finally saw my opportunity. I went up to King Artaxerxes. I had a conversation with the king. I had to pray in the moment, this arrow prayer, and look up to God and say, help. And then I made my ask, and I had this plan, and I traveled 900 miles, and I did an investigation. I looked at all of this. You know why I was able to do this? Because the good hand of God was upon me. Well, if you're listening to this, I'd imagine you'd be motivated by this. He's not ridiculing them. He's inspiring them. The reason we could do this is that they're moving the focus away from their resources because there are poor and helpless people and saying, don't worry, we can do this because God's right hand is with us. He's strong enough to do this. I mean, we know how that song goes if you're growing up in the church. Haven't you ever sang that song? Maybe we've done it here a couple times at VBS. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. And that's what Nehemiah is saying. You're in good hands. Remember that email that we used to read, and I've shared this before? It all depends on whose hands it's in. Basketball in my hands is 50 bucks. Basketball in LeBron's hands is a million dollars. A rod in my hand can maybe kick a stray dog away. A rod in Moses' hand split the Red Sea. Five bread and two fish in my hands makes fish sandwiches. Five bread and two fish in the Savior's hands feeds 5,000. Nails in my hands, maybe I can make a birdhouse. The nails in the Savior's hands bring salvation to the world because it depends on whose hands it's in. And Nehemiah is saying at the end of the day, this project is in God's hands, even in light of opposition. See, Sanballat, without going into this, Sanballat had a bone in this game because Jerusalem was in his jurisdiction, so he had a political and a power objection. Tobiah had a religious objection because he came from a mixed race of Israel. His name means Yahweh is good, but he had a religious rivalry with Israel. Geshem had a lucrative trade with frankincense and myrrh, didn't like the fact that Nehemiah is moving and shaking, rebuilding, it changes up the economy. Friends, there's nothing different, really, even though this happened thousands of years ago that could disrupt a vision. It's political interest, it's religious interest, and it's financial interest. But you see what motivates Nehemiah is that he's not interested in those things. He doesn't have backroom deals. He doesn't say, give me political power and connection, and then I'll let you have a voice in this plan. He doesn't say, give me a little bit of a donation, and I'll alter the plan for you so that we could have this project to be done. He says, I'll compromise in my worship. He doesn't say that if you actually support this and give me more people, and maybe I could alter the worship of God. The three major objections that we see here in opposition are the three major idols that we often see throughout humanity, but Nehemiah shows that his motivation was not personal glory, but it was God's glory. It was not ultimately about the walls, but it was about God's glory and not personal fame. Alistair Begg once said about this passage, it is a very awareness of our insignificance that may prove to be the pathway to significance in Christian living and ministry, the way up is down. Nehemiah was high up there. He could have got even higher. He had the money. He had the religion. He had the politics. He had them in his back pocket. But he says no to all that 
because the awareness of his insignificance proved the pathway to significance because in Christian living and ministry, the way to up is down. And at the end of the day, the person who embodies that sort of perspective on life is going to be Jesus Christ himself. Did you ever notice that Jerusalem is a city that years later, a little baby was born in a manger in a city in Jerusalem? That God's trying to rebuild his temple and his people in the Old Testament, but it points to a true and better king in Nehemiah, in Jesus Christ, that Nehemiah points to the true and better Nehemiah in Jesus Christ who builds a temple, you and me, to rebuild and save a people for himself. That's why the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, the people of God. That Jesus himself is the one who identified with you and me. In the same way that Nehemiah says, we are in this together, and he unites the Israelites to himself, it points to Jesus Christ who unites sinners like you and me by faith so that we can be brought in and rebuilt into the kingdom to be saved and to be forgiven, to be whole, built up as the people of God that has in our hearts the Holy Spirit of God and the presence of God. Then and only then when we look to Jesus, who is our true Savior, our true King, the real true builder of the temple of you and me, and we look to Jesus Christ and he rebuilds us into his dwelling place, then and only then will we know that our God is mighty and God is strong. There's nothing that my God can't do. And he leads us and empowers us to not just lead a vision for wherever you are in life, but to lead a gospel-centered vision for your life in Jesus Christ. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Bow your heads with me. Father, we love you with all our hearts, and we thank you so much that you have sent your son, Jesus, the one who has united himself to us because he entered into our sin, he entered into our rebellion, our selfishness, our hurt, our messiness, and he saved us, and he bled for us, and he guides us and lifts us up in his resurrection to a newness of life in the very kingdom and temple of God in which your spirit, O Lord, dwells in our hearts and that we could cry out, Abba, Father, to know that we are your children and you are our Father as we pursue to collectively as a church this vision to rebuild and restore and to find healing and wholeness in Christ Jesus. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.